1: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to
2: The Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means Armchair Politics is coming up in about an hour for two hours of commentary and analysis on local, state, and national headlines from the worlds of politics and current events uh, featuring our roundtable regular, Paul Rozicki, Flint's premier political pundit, And uh, normally he would be accompanied by uh, Henry Hatter, who was scheduled for jury duty. I understand that's over, but uh, um, in any event, I asked to sit in for Henry uh, West Whitaker, who is a uh, best-selling author and the legislative liaison for, um, uh, what is it, um, convention, convention, For American States project I think that's the right name but but Wes has uh, been on the show frequently in fact he even made a trip to uh, hell with us one year Um, and um, speaking of armchair politics alumni we have uh, joining us uh, in the third chair today uh, formerly a regular on uh, armchair politics is um, JD or Jerome Dallas Wine Garden. And uh, it's going to be nice to have uh, JD back as part of our our roundtable mixer, if you will, known as uh, our roundtable political discussion, known as Armchair Politics, every Wednesday on the Tom Sumner Program. And um, we're going to start out coming up in just a few minutes with uh, another J.D., uh, J.D. Moss, who um, was the former business manager for uh, musician Nelly and the author of a new memoir called Race for What? A White Man's Journey and Guide to Healing Racism from Within. And he talks about his experiences growing up in uh uh, primarily black neighborhoods uh, in a couple of different places, and um, and and what that did for his understanding of of uh, racism and what it means to be um, anti-racist, and and we're going to talk about that and more with J.D. Uh, Moss coming up uh, in. In just a few minutes, but I do want to take, uh, while we have an extra couple of minutes, a chance to talk about an event that's coming up in uh, about two weeks, or maybe it's three weeks. Uh, In any event, it's April 20th, it's a Wednesday, from 4 to 8 p.m. at the White Horse on uh, Court Street near downtown Flint. And um, we're celebrating... uh, the Tom Sumner Program, as we get, as as it's time now to launch our fifteenth year of doing the show. It started on uh, April twenty-third in two thousand eight, um, on a different uh, radio station. Um, in fact, uh, the show was called Off the Cuff, and uh, then it morphed into the Tom Sumner Program at yet another radio station and uh... i think we're on our our third radio station but you can stream us at tom program dot com anywhere anytime because it's on twenty four hours a day in any event what we're uh... there'll be some merchandise there if you want to get some souvenirs but i'm inviting uh... anybody who's been a guest on the show been a co-host uh... musical guests Um, sponsors uh, donors and and uh, and we're just going to celebrate what the show has accomplished so far and then try to sort of um, re-energize the show Uh, in in a way it's a a little bit of a celebration of um, our efforts to get back to normal in the wake of uh, the pandemic Um, I've been fortunate That, you know, I brought the studio home just before the pandemic uh, started. So I've been able to do the show from home and I joke about being in the bunker and, you know, it's time to to get out of the bunker now. Um, And and it it may still be lingering a little bit with uh, new variants and uh, um, ongoing contagions. But with... uh, vaccination and uh, social distancing, the worst of it seems to be over. So in some ways, this is a post-pandemic um, event um, as as we start uh, working our way back to normal. And I hope part of that normal will be to re-energize the show, even though I, I, I say things have been working smoothly doing the show from home and having all my guests by phone for the most part it's it's been pretty good but the energy just has not been the same as when we had a studio and uh, had guests in person had live music from time to time so i'm i'm hoping that we'll kick off a new year and we'll start looking at doing things uh, you know, remotes getting out and about in, in um, you know maybe looking to do uh, some more in person kinds of uh, broadcasting. So um, I, I hope you'll join us. There is uh, a Facebook event page you can go to uh, for more information. But suffice it to say, uh, it's it's at the White Horse from four to eight p.m. On April twentieth, that's four twenty, at four p.m. And uh, I'd love to see you there. We'll have uh, pizza and um, oh, just a, a modest uh, contribution uh, at the door is is requested. And um, and and there's pizza and soda and you know, and and we'll. We'll have some fun. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, my guest this hour um, earned his doctorate in organizational psychology and subsequently became became heavily involved in white anti-racism groups in Los Angeles and later in St. Louis. And that work led him to uh, write a book called Race for What? A White Man's Journey and Guide to Healing Racism from Within. His name is J.D. Mass. He joins me by phone. Hi, J.D., welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Tom. It's great to be here.
2: Um let me let me ask a couple of questions. You you grew up in primarily African American neighborhoods if my reading uh is correct and and you ended up being a uh, a business manager for an entertainer.
1: Yes. So the first part is I grew up in a community that was about 50% uh white and 50% um black uh small percentage of um of Asian community as well at the time but the school district itself was uh, much more highly populated with um students who were African American and so what do you you mind if I
2: ask what city that was
1: in in St. Louis uh in a suburb called University City which at that time
2: because because you could have easily been talking about my hometown of Flint Michigan
1: Yes, yeah, so, so I've heard. I've never been, but I've always been attracted to that uh, from what I've heard from and about the place. So I did, I grew up, as I said, um, next door to a family uh, that pretty much adopted me in. It was grandmother, it was aunt's uncle's mom, and uh, and then four boys my age, and, and um, so... Two, my two closest friends uh, were there and since I was four um, have been best friends with them and that set me on a path of having more and more black friends because it also became challenging to have white friends in St. Louis uh, it just and um, as I met other white kids in, in tennis and other places in synagogue and wherever I started to find that uh, they were less comfortable with me having so many black friends. and so what, I got, what
2: period of time would that have been,
1: J.D.? This was. I was born in 75. We moved in 80 to St. Louis, and um, so it was the 80s and 90s for my growing up time period. At one point... <laughs> You know in the, what's
2: interesting that, about that, JD, is as you were describing how people were reacting to you um, because you had surrounded yourself with with black friends and and uh, comrades and so on. That that it might have been the sixties, right? And it, it's just yeah. a little surprising to me that you, you know because I. I, I came up during the 60s and um you know I remember seeing people going through some of those things and then to see that 20 years later it's still the same thing and I suppose you could say you know and even and even
1: now and know. even now there's still definitely areas I'm sure there's more areas like university city but still too much um segregation especially in the way we divide things up economically and, and whatnot. So, yeah, and during the eighth grade, um, seventh grade, actually, uh, Nelly moved there and into our neighborhood and went to our schools. And right after, uh, middle school, going into high school, he and I started to hang out quite often and it became every day and, uh, a group of us formed a crew, and you know, he and I generated a very close friendship over the years. And as I went to school, I was always kind of entrepreneurial, and I started some entrepreneurial businesses in college uh, around tennis teaching. Um, and then as I left, I got into banking. Um, Nellie. Right as I got into banking, his career started to blossom and he started to want to do entrepreneurial things, which is what he brought me on to help him with. So I definitely became more and more involved in his career over the first four years um, while I was involved in working with him.
2: Now, you got involved um, over the years in uh, uh, White anti-racism groups in L.A. and and in St. Louis, but let me let me ask you something uh, because I, I I I don't think we can define this too much. What's the difference between between saying I'm not racist and being anti-racist?
1: So. I think I'm not racist. One is uh, is a way of trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, um, and and that work. I mean, that can be done too in how we approach anti-racism work. But it's sort of trying. It's sort of to me taking away any level of responsibility for the healing process.
2: Anything and bad that's going on is not my fault because I'm my, not, not racist. Not my fault,
1: and and I think that has to do with a lot of our culture being very individual-based, and, and uh, as I speak on in the book, in the first steps, is that we, we generated this kind of zero-sum scarcity mentality, and I believe that came from growing uh, and from living in these northern regions where there were less natural resources, which is why we have to go and get resources from other countries. And we didn't develop an abundance lifestyle, which so many others did, where they were willing to share. And so that kind of spun into this more individualistic, if you have, then I don't have. And so I need to be searching for myself. And you morph that into whether or not this is my responsibility or I didn't do it. So therefore I shouldn't, you know, it's not, I'm still a good person and I didn't, you know, meet that qualification of being racist. Well, we need to heal the racism, and that's going to take intentional work, and that's what being anti-racist is about. It's the intentional work that goes into healing a process that was intentionally harmful.
2: More with organizational psychologist J.D. Moss, author of Race for What? Straight
1: Ahead hello out there everybody it's me tigger ti double that spells tigger and don't forget to remember to listen to tom Thunder program on
3: account of because
4: he's so bouncy <laughs>
2: More with organizational psychologist J.D. Moss, author of Race for What? Straight Ahead. Now, the subtitle for this uh, book, which is sort of a memoir, is uh, it's, it's Race for What? And then, A White Man's Journey and Guide to Healing Racism from Within. From within a particular community or from within oneself.
1: So, both right we I think individually we do need to focus on uh each day uh, part of being a part of a healing process that um, I think it's obvious that we need healing still to this day in this country in racism and just in the way that we practice um, interacting with one another um, and I also think that that uh it's healing within the larger and broader. I mean scope of, of community and culture and you know uh, even country to that extent are
2: there are there exercises what what does somebody do short of, of trying not to be racist to be not racist or more importantly anti-racist?
1: So, um, in the book it is memoirs and then it's seven steps, uh, to healing and, and step one being don't take a step, um, just like take some time to learn and reflect on the fact that we have not learned about other cultures in our upbringing, in our teaching, and this is purposely done. And, and so we If you look at our education system, and even to this day, we're still arguing about whether we should learn about certain parts of our history, Um, but we haven't learned about other cultures in the world. We We don't get to learn about, you know, we barely get to learn about Europe, and even when we start to learn world history in the 10th grade, it's all European war, who's running what kind of history. And so we don't really get to see the value of what indigenous cultures and aboriginal cultures have been doing, how they're connected to the earth, how they uh, um, think and, and and work in a community setting and build community. And we don't get to reflect it, but we do get to learn that we're the greatest and we're the best. And so some of this needs to be just unprogramming us to, or making us willing to learn about others and Challenge what makes us so great, so that we can even possibly be greater. I think our athletes have to do that every day. they have to put their greatness on the line and continue to show that they are or it's time for us to move on to a better performer and and so I think we need to do that within ourselves um, as one of the steps and then to really start acknowledging the harm of some of our Practices and whether or not we're bringing connections, building connections, you know, at one with the planet and, and, and each other, or are we building separate, separation and continuing this process, um, in the way that we practice? And so we need to acknowledge some of those harms. And that's step two. Step three is to then, once we've started to really acknowledge those things, is to be able to let go of our control, our privilege, and our fear, of what some building something newer would look like. And if we let go, we add room for learning about other cultures and appreciating and valuing those other cultures. So if we're, you, you know, know th- appreciating – go ahead, sorry. Yeah,
2: J.D., there's, uh, there was a phrase, it was playing through my head just now, and, and you know, we just, just um, had the Academy Awards, we're, we're into award season, and there has been a real push by the Academy, by the Grammys, by um, the Emmys, to be more inclusive. Um, and, and the companies that are producing entertainment are trying to be more inclusive. And it's all based on the fact that there are people in our, in our country, in our cities, that are really excited to see someone on television in the movies and and to hear him say it that looked like me right and i guess what i'm i'm getting at is how do we um how do we deal with that that natural attraction to be drawn to people who look like me whether it's you know whether it's within the the African American community or other people of color or white people you know how how do we how do we work past what seems to be sort of a natural tendency
1: and so I think one is we question whether it's a natural tendency or it's a, just a, such a practice tendency that we've generated that to be natural in the way that we. Well, that's a work. great.
2: That's a great right. question, and, and and one that I certainly have.
1: Yeah. So I, that's what I'm going back to. with the just challenging and taking. Assessment of that, you know, reflection on are we practicing something that, that started a long time ago and we just have built it into ourselves that we feel like it's natural or is it part of, you know, how the natural process works? And if we could just even be more curious about that and about other cultures and be able to really learn and, and not bring so much Compa- so much, uh, judgment in, and I don't like to use that word because I think we all judge, but reaction to our judgments versus just being more curious as to is there other ways that might even benefit us. Is there other ways of doing things that are just different and that's it? It's not a right or wrong, a better or worse. It's a different way of handling it. Can we be respectful of those things? Can we be curious about that? Can we gain something from those? And now do we start to hear the way we're talking differently? Are we hearing better messages instead of the way someone's saying it? Are we actually getting what they're saying by opening ourselves up to curiosity? Well, so
2: many people that that didn't have the experience of of closeness that that you had growing up um, when they when they try to address issues like this, they end up offending without meaning to offend.
1: Yes, and, and I, that is, and, and,
2: and you know this is because of my age. I remember, uh, you know. A time back in the '60s when people were first starting to to try to be aware and and try to to um, be inclusive, and I remember people with all the best intentions in the world saying, "Some of my best friends are colored," right? And that was that was the expression in the you know in the day. Yeah, and and, and it it ended up being hurtful to people but it was not intended to be.
1: Intended to be hurtful. I think we have to continue through that. If if that's the case, like, one, the receiver has to be open to the intention, and and at the same 1A, we have to be open to the fact that maybe somebody receives this differently but when I was in my classes one of my professors used to always talk about having mutual meanings to the word so they make sure that as we're using language we both understand the meanings of this because something uh, can mean something different to one group and different you know you go somewhere else and that word means something different and, and has a greater place of value in, to someone else and so Part of this is this sensitivity thing that's going on right now, and I I would love to continue to push through it. I think that we need to recognize that in any healing process, there's pain and discomfort. If you look at the process of strengthening your body, if you look at the process of healing from an injury, there is pain and discomfort in that. And if we can be okay with that, if we can acknowledge it along the way, that we're making mistakes, I still offend people. So I'm not going to sit up here and say, I got the right answer of not offending folks. It's how I want to continue to build the relationship after that offense has taken place. How do we look to heal that and, har- and and create less harm? And a lot of that is the follow-through and the action and the continued response. Some of the words of our past, are harmful because of the actions that they were always supported by. Well, if we start to demonstrate that we're bringing new actions to the table, then maybe we lessen the harm as we go along. But if we get afraid once we've made the offense that we no longer can participate, now we're still allowing the continued harm to go instead of really working through our own discomforts as well.
2: J.D., how how did it come about that you um, lived so close to African Americans in your community?
1: My parents purposely wanted to raise me in a diverse neighborhood, and diversity at that time especially was a much more black and white issue, Um, and, and so they wanted me to be raised around uh black folks and i mean from who they chose as my daycare provider when when we lived in philadelphia to the area of st louis they chose to move into was the at that time pretty much recognized as the only diverse area um that they chose to send me to that public school while so many other white families sent their children to private schools and to religious schools um They they purposely taught me to not be racist at a time when it was kind of inherent in our society, which still is to an extent as well, that we learn to feel this superiority and racism built into us just subconsciously. So they took that effort to do so. And, um, and, you know, I'm grateful for it for sure.
2: Was there something about. Their upbringing and their background that made them prone to do that or 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 that enlightened them in some way
1: various times I know my father was involved from high school on in, in kind of occlusive ways my My grandfather, although he demonstrated quite a bit of, of racist language um, and perspectives around me um, but he also was an attorney that helped get uh fair pay for for black construction workers um in the 70s i want to say 60s maybe um an equal pay for them uh so my father was on that mission my mom was much more just based on her relationships to the women that raised them and the and the uh men that were hired to be a part of where she grew up um that were people of color or, or, you know, black folks that, that meant a lot to her. And so I think from that, I mean, she wrote a beautiful story that's on my website about when her brother passed, who really felt the hurt the most were the black folks that were taking care of the family more so than a lot of the folks that were, you know, coming in the front door when they were com- when the, uh, when the caretakers were coming in the back door, and that sort of stopped her father from wanting to do that, my mom recognized all of that at a young age, and so I think there just was a value of for them growing up of wanting to uh, make some change and and do it in a way that raised their children in that way.
2: Now you mentioned parenthetically a uh, a synagogue. Um, yeah. Was your family Jewish?
1: Yes, um, I'm much heavier on the ish um, and grew up that way, uh, but yes, and the only synagogue in the inner city at that for many, many years in St. Louis was the one that we intended by a, a woman rabbi that has led quite a charge here in St. Louis in fighting racism as well.
2: I, I just I, the reason that I ask is I just wondered if if uh, your parents had had experiences uh, uh, of of discrimination as Jews. I, I you know I remember the the um, Groucho Marx uh, joke where he says I wouldn't join a club that would have me as a member.
1: <laughs> right. Um, I. Probably, we've never really talked about it much in that sense. Um, I mean, sure, they've definitely pointed out when there's been discrimination reported and, you know, how that's made them feel. My, you know, ancestors definitely have come from an era, uh, of, of having either witnessed or, or been in the area of Poland and other parts of the world during the, World War Two era, so I know that it's been in effect and and in ways built some of the reason for the desire for justice. Um, so yes, I would say that, but it was never really being a point of emphasis for us.
2: Um, I, I'm not even sure exactly how to ask this question properly, but growing up around. Um growing up around black kids, um ha- having that proximity and and having your peers and and the people that you hung out with and the kids you played with um, was there were you aware that you were actually participating in a in a different culture or a different community?
1: Not every moment, but yes, of course, Um, like I, I enjoyed it and I felt welcomed so much. So, Um, so that really was great. You know, as any kids do, we all teased each other and, you know, we picked on things that you could obviously see, which was I had less melanin. I also was really short. Um so <laughs> like you know I still that's, am
2: That's that's <laughs> pretty rough JD being a short white kid in a black neighborhood.
1: And you know it taught me some probably triggered defensive mechanisms but I also remember feeling as we were growing up and I would go into all black spaces when we were kind of hanging out at the skating rink or you know at a party or something of that nature. And it felt to me sometimes like, one, we would get stares, but I often felt like, was I making them uncomfortable? Because there weren't many spaces where they could be just naturally in their own environment. And yet here comes this white face that they don't know me, and I'm not judging them the way that they think I might be, but still there's a stigma because of so much of the history of it that. I felt like at times um I was possibly making them uncomfortable just by being in that space um whereas uh as I often felt uncomfortable from a just a how I felt like they were um feeling from that standpoint if that makes sense to you
2: It does and and I've um I I've seen that happen and I've seen it disarmed yes. by people who play music white musicians find themselves in a in a black club somewhere i've experienced mm-hmm. it myself and and felt like uh-oh <laughs> there's white people in the room <laughs> and, right and and then once the music starts that kind of goes away
1: i would definitely agree with you music uh entertainment um breaks down a lot of walls and and that's one of the beauty beautiful things about music is it it can it brings forth movement right so there's a rhythm to it and we can move to the rhythm but it also brings forth internal feelings of movement and that's why if you look at you know uh, any setting that's trying to get a message across whether it's the churches and synagogues and mosques to whether it's you know creating justice movements to whatnot, music is a part of that, and that's, uh, it's a very powerful tool.
2: Now that you've written this book and, and it's uh, out and about, um, do you have the bug? Do you think you're going to be writing some more?
1: I am not thinking about writing right now. I want to create um, a workbook to go along with it and some programs. I like the idea of blogging at this moment because it's a lot shorter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I, I definitely am open to creating more books if I feel like the bug hits me again at this point in time, I really would like to move into uh, to the work itself, because even for those who read the book, I'm hoping that you do and that it provides a sense of, of, ur- of urgency to create, be a part of the healing process, but it's all about the work at the end of the day, and that's really what I want to be involved with.
2: Well, for people who want to learn more about you and the... Uh and, and the book and and your work, Past, Present, and Future, um, do you have a website you could share?
1: Sure. It's raceforwhat.com, and F-O-R is the four, uh, raceforwhat.com. Um, my Facebook page, uh, Instagram, and TikTok are all raceforwhat, and uh, Twitter is jdmass1, the number one. Um, But, yes, there's lots of great information on the website. There's blogs, um, and there will continue to be more interactive parts.
2: Well, J.D., thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning, and um, keep up the good work.
1: Um, I really appreciate the platform you've opened up to me, and I uh, thank you. You do the same.
2: All right. Take care. That was uh, J.D. Moss. He, uh, his book is Race for What? A White Man's Journey and Guide to Healing Racism from Within. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
8: Out of Isolated life, I know. I the
7: Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone.
3: This vaccine means full.
7: It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. It's a- visit with Michelle's mom the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium.
8: We've lost enough people
7: and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to
2: get vaccinated when it's available to you.
7: So roll up your sleeve and do your part.
8: This is our shot. Now it's up to you.
6: (laughs) Yo. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again.
3: So soon. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
7: Right now, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Newhart.
8: Thank you. Thank you very
9: much. Many of you may have read The Hidden Persuaders. It's about advertising. And one of the points the book made was that the real danger of the public relations man or the advertising man was that they were creating images. And they felt that in the presidential campaigns the candidates were really getting closer and closer together. There was no real difference between them. And you were really voting for the man. And this got me to thinking, supposing this science were as far advanced during the Civil War as it is today, and there was no Lincoln. Now the advertising people realizing this would have had to create a Lincoln. And I think they would have gone about it something like this. This is a telephone conversation between Abe and his press agent just before Gettysburg. Hi uh, Abe, hey, sweetheart, how are you? Kid? <laughs> Uh, I'll I I get it, Bert. S- sort of a drag, huh? <laughs> well, Abe, you know them small Pennsylvania towns. <laughs> hey, you seen one, you seen them all. All <laughs> right, uh, listen, Abe. I got the note. What, what, what's the problem? You're, you're, you're thinking of shaving it off, <laughs> uh, Abe? Uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, with the, with the shawl and the stovepipe at the string tie. You, you don't have the shawl. Uh, where's the shawl, Abe? You, you left it in Washington. Uh, what are you wearing, Abe? A, a sort of cardigan? Abe, uh, don't you see that doesn't fit with, with the, with the uh, string tie and the beard? Abe, would, would you leave the beard on and get the shawl, huh? All right, what, now, what's this about Grant? You're getting a lot of complaints on Grant's drinking, huh? Uh, Abe, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, I don't see the problem. I mean, you, you knew he was a lush when you pointed him. You see him mean? yeah. yeah. You're you're, you're, ga- you're gag writers. Yeah, you're gag writers. You you want to come back with something funny, huh? Maybe an anecdote about a town drunk. Well, I can't promise anything, Abe. I, I, I'll get them working on it. All right, uh, Abe, you got the speech. Abe, you haven't changed the speech, have you? Uh, Abe, what do you change the speeches for? <laughs> a, couple, a couple minor changes, I'll, I'll, I'll bet. All right, all right, what are they? You what? You, you typed it.
4: <laughs>
9: Abe, uh, how many times have we told you on the backs of envelopes? <laughs> I understand it's harder to read that way, Abe. But it, it looks like you wrote it on the train coming down or something like that. Abe, could you do this? Could you memorize it and then put it on the backs of the envelopes? We're getting a lot of play in the press on that. How are the envelopes holding up? You could stand another box. All right, I'll, I'll stand All right. What, what else, Abe? You change you change four score and seven to to eighty-seven. <laughs> uh, I understand you meant the same thing. Abe. Well, Abe, that's meant to be a grabber. <laughs> uh, Abe, uh, we test marketed that in Erie, <laughs> and they went out of their minds about it. <laughs> just, just, well, Abe, it, it's sort of—it's it, sort of like Mark Anthony saying, uh, uh, "Friends, Romans, countrymen, I've got something I want to tell you." <laughs> you see what I mean, hey. hey. uh, uh, Abe. What, what, what else? People will little note nor long remember. Hey, what could possibly be wrong with that? Oh. They'll remember it. Hey. hey, they'll remember it. It's the old humble bit. You can't say it's a great speech. I think everybody's going to remember it, Abe. Hey you come off a bragger don't you see that (laughs) hey hey, do this piece the way charlie wrote it would you Uh, the inaugural address swung didn't it Uh, all right anything else you you talk to some newspaper men uh abe i wish you wouldn't talk to newspaper men (laughs) well you always put your foot in no, that's just what I mean Abe. No, 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 you're a rail splitter, then an attorney.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
9: Abe, it, do- it doesn't make any sense that way. I mean, you wouldn't give up your law practice to become a rail splitter, don't you? <laughs> w- would you read the by Og, Abe? You'll save a lot of trouble on this, uh, uh, Abe. Abe, listen, before I forget, um, uh, the manufacturer is coming out with the Abe Lincoln (laughs) t-shirt on Tuesday could you work that into the address somewhere Abe play it by ear whatever you can do Abe have you got a pencil and paper there will you take this down you can fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time but you can't fool all the people all the time well, you keep doing it differently, Eddie, right. <laughs> but The last quote I got was, "You can fool all the people all the time," and you, like. <laughs> uh, Abe. Abe hold, hold on, hold on. Uh, they come up with a thing on Grant. Oh, right, right. Good, good. But, Yeah, all oh, beautiful. Yeah, Abe, listen to this. It's, they got a beautiful squelch on Grant. Right. The next time they bug you about Grant's drinking, right. you tell them you're going to find out what brand he drinks and send a case of it to all your other generals uh, uh no no it's it's uh, like like the brand uh, was the reason he won <laughs> no 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 eh. uh, uh abe uh, use it it's fun <laughs> trust me Mr. Uh, uh, Sat- saturday night oh abe i'm sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna be in new york saturday night a bridge party at the White House? Oh, Abe, I'd, I'd love to make it. Uh, how about Seward? You try him? He, he'll be out of town, too, huh? Oh, that's just... That's you, you, you and... Uh, what's your name? Be home alone. Mary, be home alone. Uh, listen, Abe, uh, why don't you take in a play? I'll, I'll be talking to you. Come on.
4: This was
0: another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
7: Wash my hands I don't touch my face I stay at home, shelter in place, social distance, don't go to work, I wear a mask and gloves stay away from church, I avoid old folks, and should I sneeze, I do it in my elbow Or up my sleeve Six feet apart That is the room And I pray for the day The kids can go back to school I'm washing my hands Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors and I'm sick of what I see. Two more weeks of quarantine will be the death of me. The death of me. I risk a trip store to buy a TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find is sixteen honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing Raccoon with OCD, I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. Yeah, two more weeks of this quarantine's gonna be the death of me. They say this is war, but we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Pork Chop Hill, and we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup. I know what I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes, dear, yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. What slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized as <laughs> soon as I regained consciousness. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on, come on, get out of here.